good to uh, see you this morning. Good to uh, introduce some of our elders that are going to come and share with us this morning what we call at Western Hills Truth Talks. And so they're going to share one truth about God that causes them to experience wonder or a sense of, of awe. And so I'm excited that they can come and have this opportunity. Actually, Nathan Redmond was supposed to share this morning as well. And uh, he is ill this morning, so he is not with us. And then Hugh Sauer and Mary are out of town, and so they're not with us this, uh, this morning. But I'm um, happy that Stephen Dellinger and uh, Britt Clay and Scott Sanders can all share with us this morning. And I just want to pray for them right now before I turn it over to Stephen. And uh, so let me do that, if you would. Father, I just thank you for your presence here this morning. And uh, we just come to gather together, Lord, to hear from you. Uh, we're your church, and you've called us together. You've called us to gather together, Lord, to worship you together, to hear your word together. And so, Lord, in obedience to your word, we're here this morning. And, Lord, uh, we just trust you to honor the promises of your word, that where two or three are gathered together, there you are in the midst of us. And so we welcome you right now, Lord Jesus. We welcome your spirit into this place. And I just pray now that you would use each one of these vessels to speak to us. Lord, I know that we're all at different places in our journey, in our lives, and we're going through different circumstances. Lord, I just pray, God, that your word would right now uh, just speak to where we're at in each one of our circumstances as these men share with us. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to us. And thank you for these men and their willingness to share with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Brother Stephen. And uh, I wasn't sure. We sitting, standing, squatting? It would be, especially for me. I'd be hidden behind this thing. Hello, everybody. I'm Stephen Dellinger. All of you should know me. What I'm going to be talking about today is the wonder of the relationship that we get to have with God. And uh, as I kept on considering this, one of the big things that really struck me um, and the word that's been bouncing around in my head is uh, the idea of audacity or audacious. Um, now, it's not a perfect word uh, because the, the two main definitions that are related to it have to do with either taking bold risks or uh, this idea of impertinence, which is hard because neither one of those things, I believe, really apply to God because he's perfect and he's all-powerful. But to give you an understanding of how I'm viewing it and why the, why the word is sticking out to me, I'll give you an example. Um, so Justin Warner is one of my best and closest friends, and I, I give him a, a hard time about things uh, in our relationship all the time. But... One of, the, one of the things I'll give you here is just an example of, of our relationship. So if I was to go to the, their house, Justin and Taylor's, and I was to go in, um, it wouldn't be too strange uh, for me to immediately remove my shoes and to approach their refrigerator and begin looking for delicious snacks or to start uh, brewing coffee um, and then tell them if their coffee was low so they get some more for me. But... Um, and those things, they, that shows a familiarity in the relationship, right? That, that would be a little bit more audacious if, say, I uh, 
was meeting with a boss or a world leader. You, you don't usually go into their houses and take off your shoes. It depends on the place, but it's not usually kosher. And I'm not advocating that you go through a stranger's refrigerator. Don't do that. They'll, they'll, they'll make you leave. So this, this idea of getting an audacious relationship. So this will make a little bit more sense to you as, as I explain my, my thought process here. So if you look in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the very beginning of the Bible, it says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So we start out with this massive, massive uh, schism in a relationship between us and God where we are the created and he is the creator. And then you look in Colossians chapter 1, verse 17, that God was before all things and that all things continue to exist because of him. There's a massive difference in the relationship there. None of us would be here without him. None of us would continue to exist except for God and his hand in our lives. So there's a big positional difference, more massive than any world leader or any boss or any authority figure could have in our lives when it comes to the relationship with God. So God does something, and th this, is, this is what seems really audacious. This is what seems really strange, and it's what I wonder at. God sent Jesus, and Jesus came in the form of man, and he died for us, and he rose again, and he gives us this opportunity to have a relationship, and um, this is one of the words, or a set, that he shared with his disciples, and he's talking to them about abiding in him, and abiding in God, and abiding in love, and the commandments that he's giving, and just the relationship that, that he would have with them. It says in John chapter 15, verse 15, No longer do I call you servant, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. That God would take that relationship, where we're the created, he's the creator, he's all-powerful, he's all-knowing. He's in control of everything. And say, I'm not going to call you a servant anymore. I'm going to call you friend. But he takes the audacity another step. We read in Romans chapter 8, verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry. Abba, Father. So we're not just friends. But this all-powerful God calls us his children. Through Jesus Christ, through choosing to follow him, God offers us this opportunity to be adopted children of the creator of the universe. And that's amazing. That fills me with wonder. Um, recently, uh, just a few weeks back, um, I... <laughs> had my appendix removed, and that was exciting. Great time, great time. Um, so it took me a couple weeks to recover. Nailed that. Um, and then after that, I caught the flu. It was, it was good, too. And then, after I finished recovering from the flu, I got a fever blister, because I must have been stressed, because uh, it was finals week in college. Um, and I missed a lot of essential classes, a lot of important courses for understanding things necessary for test taking, and uh, it was a mess. 
And I was, I was pretty discouraged, y'all. I was, uh, I was a little, little depressed because I worked really hard throughout the semester, done the best I, I could to try to make things work out. And it seemed like a lot of outside uh, forces were, were working against me and things I couldn't control. But God reminded me of something. And what he reminded me of um, is, is the thing that I wonder about, that I'm in awe of, and that's the relationship he's given us. Regardless of the, the outside forces, the things that happen, sickness or uh, really difficult tests, we are children of God. And this God who is all-powerful, who is perfectly in control, perfectly sovereign, he's watching over us. He cares about us. He cares about the, when we get sick, when we're hurting, when we're struggling. And the audacity that a God who is in control and who is so perfect would care about me and the things that I'm struggling through is what fills me with awe. And when you all get to experience that, when you all understand that and see that, you have the same opportunity to rest in it and to understand that God's got you. God loves me. And he's just so wonderful. Good morning. My name is Britt Clay. I'm the youth pastor here at Western Hills. And today I just want to take a few moments to talk with you about the wonder of the peace of God. And I have to be honest in saying that I'm definitely not uh, somebody who's talking from like the position of I'm an expert in this because uh, I need to hear the words that come out of my mouth as much as I think anybody else that needs to hear them. And actually, Jerry asked us to have our, our ideas uh, submitted a few weeks ago, and I submitted mine, and literally a day later, I felt like I am not at peace. This is ironic. Um, and so uh, I know that God has a plan for that in my life just as much as he does in yours. And I want to kind of define peace, knowing the peace of God is this, simply knowing that God is always by my side, and that he's always in control of every circumstance of my life. Friday, about 4.30 p.m., Lauren and I <clears throat> were like, we need to go do a few, thing, do, go do a few things. Uh, we need to go to Goodwill, drop some stuff off. Wanted to go to Marshall's and get something. And so we decided to get our kids together and, and go do a few errands. And so we drive out of our neighborhood. Goodwill's literally like just two blocks over from our house. So we pull in, drop our stuff off, pull out. We're on Penn, driving towards Marshall's, and Lauren looks down at her shoes, and she goes, I'm still wearing house shoes. Can you imagine my wife going into Marshall's with house shoes on? Definitely not going to happen, okay? (laughs) So we're about to 80th Street, so I turn on to 80th Street, go back into our neighborhood, and uh, head to our house, and she walks into the house and doesn't think anything, puts her shoes on. Then all of a sudden, my wife is extremely alert and aware of everything. Um, And so she all of a sudden smells cigarette smoke in our house. And if you know Lauren and I, we're heavy chain smokers, okay? (laughs) We are not smokers at all, okay? And she's like, 
why does our house smell like cigarette smoke? And she turns around. She remembers all of a sudden that the door was slightly open whenever she comes into the house. And she turns around and notices that our house had been broken into. <clears throat> and so in a matter of like probably 12 minutes or something like that, um, she comes to the car and tells me our house has been broken into. You know, like I didn't walk around or anything. So I tell her, call the cops. I go in the house. Duke, our 100 plus pound half lab, half pit, good for nothing dog was inside and did nothing. Okay. Um, <laughs> he loves our kids though. Um, <laughs> and um, I walk in and he's just sitting there like his pin ears are pinned back. He's scared. Um, the cops come, they clear our house and uh, they're like, you know, walk through, see what see what was taken, and I'd go in the house, and fortunately, the only thing that was taken was some jewelry, and uh, it was very sentimental to Lauren, but uh, could have been a lot worse. They, like, basically destroyed our bedroom, um, and even though they didn't take very much, the, the job had been done. The piece was stolen from our home because we had been invaded, <clears throat> and honestly, like, I was okay. Like, I don't know if you know me. I'm pretty even-keeled. And um, and so I was just kind of like, you know, at least it was just jewelry, you know, nothing else. At least we weren't home. I thought it was weird that it literally happened in that small amount of time. Um, but, you know, people come who love us. Our family comes over, Brandon, mom and dad. Uh, then Scott Sanders comes. People are coming over just to check on us, which is really sweet. And they leave, and Lauren goes to go buy us a security system. And... <laughs> <laughs> she was like, there ain't no way I'm staying in this house with our children tonight by myself. So I was like, okay. So she goes by a security system, and I go around the house, and somebody, I don't remember who, prompted me to just go around the house, make sure all the windows were still locked and things like that. And so I was like, okay. And I go around the house, and I knew all of our windows were locked, um, but I was like, I'll just do it anyways. And I go into Raylan's room. She's asleep, and I look at one of her windows, and it was unlocked. And it was in that moment that my heart became troubled because all of a sudden, in a moment's time, my heart was like, my mind was going, they were planning on coming back. They chose my five-year-old daughter's room to come back into. And what if they would have come, what if they weren't coming for stuff? What if they were coming for my daughter? What if they would have wanted to kidnap my daughter? What if they sell her into sex trafficking uh, or rape her? Those types of things, like just in a moment's time. And all I, I knew all I needed to do was, you know, turn the little knob and it'd lock it and it'd be okay. And I did that and I was good again, you know, but it was just amazing how in that moment's time, fear flooded my, my, my entire being, honestly. <laughs> um, uh, and so, but I knew that God was in control still. I, I still knew that we were okay and that we were safe and did what I needed to do to make sure my family was safe at that time. Like I said earlier, I'm not an expert on the peace of God, but I know this about the peace of God. Philippians 4, 5 through 7 says this, Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything through prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, that part always gets me, let your requests be known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. 
uh, I don't know. I can't understand the peace of God. It's hard to communicate <laughs> the peace of God to you today. But I know that it's real, okay? Um, I, I know that it's real because of how I've experienced it in my life. I can't explain how through, as a teenage boy at home without our dad who was in Boston, my family was able to be at peace with a tornado that came through and destroyed our neighborhood and damaged our house. You know, I can't explain how I knew that Lauren was the one for me to marry. I just knew I had a peace about it. can't really explain how um, <clears throat> whenever my father-in-law and brother-in-law are in a car accident, I'm able to sit in the ICU room and quote scripture to Lauren about the peace of God. I can't really understand how whenever my wife gives birth to our firstborn son, and um, it's really hard, and he ends up in the NICU, how we had peace during that time. And I also can't explain how I have peace about raising support so that I can work here and work with students here in South Oklahoma City. Most people look at me like I'm crazy whenever I tell them that. Um, but I know that God has given me peace in all of those circumstances. Uh, John In John 14, it's probably my favorite chapter in Scripture. It starts off with, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus is talking to his disciples. Um, later on, he says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives to you, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. This is the truth for you and me. Satan wants nothing more for our hearts to be troubled. I know that whenever my heart is troubled, it's like there's nothing else I can think about. I just become completely shut down. And I'll just sit there and I'll think about what my heart's troubled about instead of turning to God. (laughs) Um, Whenever I'm troubled, I become ineffective for the kingdom of God. That's all there is to it. And the same is true for you. When your heart's troubled and you let that consume your mind, you let it consume your heart, then you become ineffective for the kingdom of God. And there's nothing that would make Satan happier than to make me and you, our church, ineffective by causing us to be troubled by circumstances of life. And there's so many things that I know about and that are going on in the families of our church that it would be so easy for us, for you, to just be troubled about. But I see the peace of God in many of your lives, and I'm grateful for that. Whenever my heart's troubled, this is what I try to do. I don't always do it, but I set my mind on Christ. I go to him knowing that he's near. He's always right by my side. And he's waiting to listen. And I pray to him. And I try to give thanks to him. Sometimes I vent a lot to him. But then as I just let go of the circumstances of life and let him keep control of them, then all of a sudden the peace that surpasses all understanding begins to consume my heart and my mind. And so I hope that this encourages you to do the same. Whenever life gets hard and it seems like there's just wave after wave after wave 
after really hitting you. If you're able to turn to God and know that he's near, he's right by your side, he's in complete control of the circumstance, as difficult and sometimes stupid as it may seem, and he wants you to let him have control of it. So thanks for letting me share with you guys. Well, good morning. Whoa, where'd they find, where'd they find that picture? Okay. My, uh, my talk this morning is the glory of God in our pain. And I guess I should start, uh, don't show me with your hand. Is there anybody in this room that has ever experienced pain? Okay, I just want to make sure I was in the right place. Listen, when we hurt, there are two things that are true. There's a question that we always ask, and then there's a condition that we truly desire. And the question we always ask is why, right? Why this pain, Lord? Why is, why is this pain here? And by the way, I'm speaking about pain in the same way that Britt was speaking about peace. I don't feel like I'm an expert. To be honest with you, I don't feel I've, I've experienced great pain like many of our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ and many of you. But we are pre-wired, created, if you will, to want to know what the purpose is for our pain, right? I'm not talking about consequences that we experience when we suffer for our sin, okay? If we're, if we're, uh, unless we're really in denial, we know when our sin brings us pain, okay? Uh, but when we hurt, and it's not because of sin, not knowing why can be really distressing for us. Somehow it helps us get through the pain when we know what the reason of it is, right? And when I was thinking about that, I was thinking of childbirth. I mean, what woman in their right mind would take on that kind of pain except for the gift at the end, right? Well, the condition that we desire in our pain is that we don't want to be left alone in our pain. Now, we want someone there. You know what? Anyone will do. I want you to know that when you go to visit people in pain. Any, anyone will do. But it's even better if that person knows by experience that same pain. I mean, they know. They've been there. And even if they're just listening, as I pour out my heart to them, they know, and that gives me comfort that they know, right? In a twisted way, <laughs> this is why we want the people that hurt us to hurt the same way, because we don't want to be alone in our pain. So who better to get it than get what I got than the person that hurt me, right? That's kind of a malicious intent that we have. That's kind of a a horrible way to experience uh, not being alone in our pain. But in our wickedness, we, we sometimes think that way. Well, let's, let's turn the corner. I want to talk about the glory of God. We know glory, right? It's the manifest presence of God. As a noun, it's reflected in His majesty and His beauty and His awesomeness. 
But as a verb, it's all the things we do or he does for him to be magnified, for him to be made bigger, enlarged. Anything that exalts him. In other words, anything that brings him glory. So what glory is, it's his manifest presence in all its wonder and majesty and hugeness. And we know he was revealed in glory all the way through Scripture. When first, first in creation, Psalm 19 says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. We look at the bigness of creation, and even the smallness, we get to the atomic level, we see this unbelievable, majestic view of God. And then in various times to different people, he, he manifests himself, the burning bush. You know, it wasn't consumed. Moses went and approached it. The pillar of fire by night or the cloud by day when he was leading, his, leading the children of Israel out of Egypt. On Mount Sinai, you know what happened on Mount Sinai? He gave the law and he gave instructions for the tabernacle. Why the tabernacle? Because he was going to manifest his glory in the tabernacle. He was going to tabernacle with men. He was going to dwell with men. And it was going to come in a glorious display. And, you know, we just celebrated recently that his glory was manifest through a Christ child. John 1.14 says the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then we read from Hebrews, he is the radiance of God's glory, Jesus, and the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. So in the Christ child in that simple manger in Bethlehem was revealed the massive glory of God. His, his, his magnificence was displayed there. And then finally, his glory is revealed in the church. Paul said in Ephesians, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And, of course, we read in Revelation of his glory. I mean, it, it enlightens, illumines heaven, just his presence. However, an aspect of his glory was revealed when Jesus prayed in John 17. And you know this prayer comes after he has just spent a, a large amount of time encouraging uh, his disciples and uh, sharing the promise of the Holy Spirit to come. And then it says in verse 17, I mean in chapter 17, after he spoke these things, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and the apostles got to witness a personal prayer of Jesus with the Father. And this is hours before he is to be um, sentenced. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. What hour is he talking about? He's talking about the crucifixion. He's talking about the suffering he's getting ready to walk into. 
even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that, you, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you, I magnified you, I exalted you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And then he went to the cross. You know, there were some gentlemen on the road to Emmaus that were kind of unsure of some things, and Jesus said this to him: Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? You know, later on in, in Jesus' prayer, he prays for us. He prays for his disciples, and he says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word. And as you find out later on, this is what he prays for us. The glory which you have given me, this is still before the crucifixion. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. So like Christ, when we magnify him in our pain and suffering, we demonstrate that the Lord is more glorious and precious to us than any pain or difficulty we might endure. Sometimes it takes the suffering to get us to release our grasp on temporal things that we might grasp him. And it also answers the question of why. Because the ultimate purpose of God is God being magnified through our lives, right? Whether in joy or suffering. But it also addresses the condition of suffering alone. Have you considered that no one has suffered more than Jesus? He knows of poverty, being misunderstood by family, the ignorance of his disciples, rejection by the religious establishment, ungratefulness, betrayal, fake trials where liars and deceivers testified against him, brutal torture, extreme physical pain, shame, the jeering crowds, and it goes on and on and on. He fully understands every pain we bear. Hear that? He fully understands it. And, and more. I mean, he bore the sin of the world's penalty. I mean, we can't even comprehend that. He bore that. And he promises, as Jerry reminded us last week, I will never leave you or forsake you. Now, do we need the church? I mean, this is a question maybe for uh, our modern generation. Do we need the church to experience that I will never leave you or forsake you? Well, I believe we do. While Paul was in prison... He wrote Colossians, and he wrote to the church there, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, 
which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. I can't, that verse just blows me away. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God, uh, from, uh, excuse me, stewardship from which God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, many theologians believe that hope is just our future hope. It's just the promise of our future glory. But I'm here to say that that passage is also talking about the church's place today, that we are the manifest presence of Christ in the world in the now. As the babe in the manger is the embodiment of the holy God, not a metaphor. He wasn't a metaphor of who God is. He was God. So we are the body of Christ. Not a metaphor. We're the body of Christ. So to conclude, in the way we receive his comfort in our pain, we become vessels of glory to those in the same pain. We mourn with those who mourn. And this magnifies and glorifies God on the earth. Now, this is uh, a representation of as best I can figure, of what would be called a tear catcher. In the Roman period, they would use vessels, bottles, similar to this, with an open end at the top, to catch tears. And uh, then they would bury the vessel in tombs, and it was to show how respected or how honored those people were. Okay. Um, they might even, if there weren't enough mourners, hire mourners to fill these, right? Because they wanted them to be fully respected when they died. Uh, later on, many, many centuries later on in the Victor- Victorian era, uh, 19th century time, uh, they were used uh, to fill your tears, and then they were left to evaporate. And so, you know, back in that period, they, they put on black and they mourned. They had a mourning period, Okay. Well, the, the tear catcher would be left somewhere, whereas it evaporated. Once it fully evaporated, that was the end of the mourning period, what they would do. But then it was kind of resurrected again um, during that same period, during the Civil War, where uh, they had stories of Civil War uh, wives filling jars up with their tears that when their men came home, they could see how... Um, how missed they were when they saw a jar full of their tears. Now, I share that with you because there's a passage of Scripture in Psalm that expresses God's respect for you. You have taken account of my wanderings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God whose work I praise, 
in the Lord whose word I praise. In God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Now, um, in our first tenure here back in the late 80s and early 90s, um, Renee and I were newly wed. We had a couple of boys. And um, again, I don't feel like I've experienced much pain, but I knew a number of people that were. I was at CHA. Some of the teachers were going through some very difficult times. And um, this song was written during that time and uh, expresses these truths. So I'm just going to end this time uh, with this song. I was formed <clears throat> for your good pleasure, so do with me what you will. Even those trials, too big or small, you quiet my spirit still. And that is when your still small voice gives me hope within each test. Then I pour my soul to you and enter your rest. Fill me, Lord, with your spirit, overflow my heart, and overcome my will with yours, flood through every and comfort me so I can see to comfort those in pain till the hurt reveals the glory of your name. Lord, to me, you are a treasure who saves my every tear. When you were suffering, the Father knew, and you trusted your life to his care. And now I see a purpose in the pain that we must bear. I can trust my heart to you, for I know Reveals the glory of 
comfort me so I can see to comfort those in pain till the hurt reveals the glory of your name. May my life reveal the glory service today by participating in the communion and so in preparation for that this morning let me read to you from 1 Corinthians 11 what Paul wrote to the church at Corinth he said for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed he took bread and when he had given things, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this drink, this bread, and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So Paul tells us that this communion that we're about to partake was instituted by Jesus. And in verse 17, which I didn't read, the scripture says this, Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. The Lord Jesus gave us the communion to make us better. I want you to think about your own personal history and relationship to the communion and ask the question, has the communion of the church made you a better Christian? Can you draw a direct link between the growth in your spiritual life and participating in the communion in the church. Now, if I was honest, I would have to say to you, not much. Not much that I can think of. That I was saved during a communion service, and that was the one service that I can recall. It made my life a lot better, the communion that night. The understanding of the gospel that came to me through the communion made my life better. But since that time, in all my years of being a pastor, I can't look back on another communion service and man said, that was life-changing. You know, they sort of all run together. All the times that I have partaken in communion since I became a Christian, and I really can't point to one here or one there and say, you know what? I'm a better Christian because of that communion time. But according to what Paul said, it was instituted so that it would make us better. 
In other words, it was intended to promote our spiritual interest. It was intended to melt and mend our hearts. The communion was. In other words, the communion was supposed to be a cure for us as Christians as we go through our daily lives in a sin-filled world. The communion was supposed to be part of the cure. Where there are quarrels, it was to bring reconciliation. The communion was. Where there were secret sins, it was to bring righteousness. Where there was apathy, it was to bring spiritual renewal and rededication. The communion that the Lord instituted was supposed to accomplish those things and make our lives better. The communion to the church was to be what the annual feast refused. Times of remembrance that brought about spiritual renewal. Well, how can something so common to daily life make such an impact on our souls? The communion reminds us, you see, of our covenant with God. That's the intended purpose of the memorial, to remind us of our covenant with God. And also, it's to remind us of the cost that Jesus paid for us to be involved in this covenant that we've heard about through these fellows this morning, at least. We've heard different pieces of the covenant from them this morning. Look what Jesus, what Paul said. And when he had given thanks, he broke the bread and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup, this cup that we're about to partake, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often, which that indicates that it was to be a regular thing, a regular thing, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. This new covenant, this is supposed to remind us of this covenant all the time, every time that we participate in it, and it's supposed to make our lives better as Christians, improve our lives. You know what a covenant is, right? It's an agreement. It's an agreement between two people, two parties. And in the agreement, the two people that are involved in the covenant, like a marriage covenant, they make certain pledges to one another. Being in agreement, what has God pledged to us in in what we're about to do? Well, God has agreed to forgive us of our sins against him. That's pretty significant. He has agreed to adopt us as his children, to make us his temple, and to give us eternal life with him. That's what God has agreed to do. And in order to get it done, it cost him his son, who became a man, to pay for the sins of the world. His body had to be pierced, and his blood had to be shed for this covenant to be made. And so Jesus chooses these ordinary things. He chooses bread and wine to symbolize what it cost him to make this covenant with us. Well, if a covenant is an agreement between two parties, what's our agreement? Well, we have agreed to receive by faith what God has done and repent of our sins 
our agreement is indicated first by baptism in water, and then our agreement to this covenant is, is indicated by eating the bread and drinking the wine, which we will do here in just a few moments. And so this regular remembrance of this covenant was supposed to make us better. It was supposed to make us better Christians, to be more dedicated in our lives to Jesus. It was intended to promote our spiritual interests. It was intended to melt and mend our hearts as we remembered the covenant. It was supposed to be a cure. Well, in the church at Corinth, it wasn't making the church at Corinth better, Paul said. It was making the church worse. That's happened at Western Hills. The communion has made our church worse rather than better. So listen to me very closely because we need to change something for it to make us better rather than worse. You see, in the church at Corinth, the communion, instead of being a cure, it become a cause of scandal. Because here they were celebrating this communion, and they were doing it while they were in division. The communion actually promoted division in the church at Corinth, rather than making them better. And then it says it promoted deception. Because there were people that were hiding these secret sins that were terrible things and they were coming to the communion like all was well and so the communion promoted not only division it promoted deception and then God was judging some of the folks in the church because of the division and the deception and so the communion was actually promoting death people were dying as a result of the communion this communion that was supposed to be a blessing to the church had actually become a curse to the church. In other words, the church at Corinth had turned the institution against itself. Isn't that incredible? You know, it's amazing to me that God is so patient with his church. We can trample the blood of his son under our feet, and he keeps sending people like Paul to urge the church to repent for misusing the institution. If the regular ordinances of Christ are not practiced with fidelity, instead of making us better, they will make us worse. Do you understand that that's a truth that goes right to our souls? In other words, if I show up every Sunday morning singing worship songs to Jesus, listening to the preaching of the word, participating in the communion, sharing life with others in small groups, but I'm doing it with disrespect for the covenant, It makes me worse. It hardens my heart to God rather than melting my heart and healing me. We will not become better if we approach with disrespect in our church the singing and worship and the preaching of the word and the communion and sharing life together in small groups. We're going to become worse as we go through those practices. So here's what Paul said. With that in context, he said, examine yourselves. Examine yourselves. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Do you know how serious that is? 
Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So let me ask you before we go to the communion. The last year, the last two years, three years, have you been approaching the ordinances of the church with disrespect? Because if so, you're actually showing disrespect for the covenant and the blood of Jesus that was sacrificed so that we could have this agreement. Yes, we have had our share of scandals in my 35 years here at Western Hills. I mean, I know of at least 17, 17 scandals involving sexual immorality. So that means people were coming every Sunday, participating in worship, participating in preaching, participating in fellowship, participating in communion, but practicing sexual immorality while they were doing it. 17 times that I know of that that's taken place. It wasn't making them better. It was making them worse because they were pretending. There have been family desertion and divorce. There's even been financial fraud by some of our members. As they were doing all of these things, they were actually being fraudulent in their business practices and ripping people off of money. Yes, that's happened right here with us. So we've been the church at Corinth. When it comes to the communion, have we seen God's judgment? Well, I rejoice that we have. You say, why would you rejoice that we've seen God's judgment? Well, I rejoice because I am concerned when someone does this and doesn't experience God's judgment. Because Paul says in this very passage that God chastens those that he loves. And if someone hadn't been chastened, you know what I think? I think they're lost rather than saved. I'm concerned for the souls of those where there, there's not been judgment. Now, I'm sharing this with you today, and we're moving into a new year, and we've been discussing this as elders for our church as we've evaluated our qualifications as leaders. You know, we've normally practiced communion in our small groups in our church, and we do that about once a month. But this New Year's, our, our elders have decided that we're planning to practice it more in our services beginning today. And what I want this is understand what we're doing. And I want us to, to come together and approach the communion with the respect that Jesus deserves. Approach it with respect. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to be in robes and that I've got to be the one administering the communion because I'm the lead pastor of the church. You can practice communion in your home with your family. You don't need an ordained minister to lead you in the communion. But it means that we're, we're, we're doing our due diligence and remembering what it's all about, the covenant so that we can experience God's presence, so that we can experience God's peace, so that we can have hope in the midst of our suffering. Jesus, Jesus shed his blood so that we could enjoy all of these benefits. So let us approach the communion with respect. Let us remember every time we partake of it, the covenant that we have with God. And let's remember 
what he has agreed to do, which is incredible. And let's remember what it cost him for us to be in this covenant. And then let's remember what we have agreed to do. What have we agreed to do? To put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and to repent of our sins. And let's let the communion become the cure in our church that God intended it to be. Let's let the communion make us better rather than make us worse. Where there are quarrels, let's let the communion bring reconciliation. Where there are secret sins, let it bring confession and transparency and righteousness. And where there's apathy, let the communion bring renewal and rededication to our mission. Let's honor the Lord Jesus as we partake of the communion that he instituted for us. Here's how we're going to do it today. Our small group leaders are going to lead their small groups in communion in this auditorium, just like they normally come and get names from the names wall and pray over them. Our small group leaders are going to go to the back, and their elements are back there, and they're going to go get the elements, and then they're going to go to a certain place in the room. You're in their small group. You can gather with them, and they will celebrate communion with you in the small group. But then if you're not a member of a small group, which there's only a few folks here this morning that aren't, but if your small group leader's not here or you're not a member of a small group, then what I want you to do is feel the freedom to join one of the groups that are here. We practice open communion for all believers of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not just for our members at Western Hills. It's for all believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to participate with us this morning, we invite you to do so. If you can't participate with us for some reason, you need to slip out, then we understand that as well. Now, I know that we're taking down the greens today, but look, we're not taking down the greens until the last group's finished today. If you can hang around for that, then please just step outside and wait till the last group is finished, and then uh, we'll come back in and take down the greens, okay, today. So I'm going to ask all of our small group leaders at this time if you would move back to the back and get the elements and then move to your place in the auditorium. Let them do that first.